Apostles chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Then they had them brought before the magistrates and they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he had supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before him, and he and his entire household rejoiced that they had become a believer in God. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us here. Help us to believe that we're in this room because you have seen to it. Help us to believe that you see us right now, whatever our social location, whatever our, our mental and emotional state, state, state of being is right now, however we walk in this room. Help us to believe you see us. You see us in all of our complexity and all of our sorrow and all of our anxiety, and all of our joy, and all of our contradiction, and your response is always to move towards us 
in love. Help us to believe that you are actually already present within us and in us and in this room. And so help us to be present to your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a story we have here, right? I mean, a slave girl, a mob, a jailbreak, quite the, uh, quite the narrative. And I love preaching from these stories um, because if we will dig into them and if we'll pay attention deeply, um, we will find all sorts of ways in which this, these stories are just the story of our life today as well. In one of the commentaries I was looking at, a man named Matt Skinner said that this story is so familiar to so many if we will think about it. He says, the story features a culture that treats people like commodities, valuing them only insofar as they produce wealth. It describes a society that closes ranks against outsiders, concluding that foreign people and ideas are detrimental to established values and incompatible with true patriotism. It tells about a system that regards punishment and incarceration as easy solutions, preferring the blunt weapon of shame and retribution over the constructive tools of dialogue and rehabilitation. And then he says, I told you it was familiar. <laughs> I told you it was familiar. That's all contained in this story. And I think that it might be a good spot as we think about these stories, these little vignettes today that we're going to look at and then try to glean a few lessons from, that we remember that the Bible is relevant because it is a narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the, the conquered, the occupied, and the defeated. That's part of the genius of Scripture is that it's written not by the winners, by and large, but by those on the outside, those at the bottom. The subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets is this very, it's a bottom-up perspective. I mean, imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee native peoples and enslaved Africans. Now, that would be a different way of telling the story, and that's what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt from the perspective of the enslaved. It's the story of, of Rome from the perspective of those who are occupied militarily. It's the story of Babylon from the perspective of those who are exiled. On and on it goes. It just tells that story. Now, I'm not going to do a whole sermon on that today, but I just want to put that in there for you as you think about looking through these little stories in Acts 16. Because depending on your social location, you will actually hear, see, and understand things differently. And that's the importance that we have for listening to those outside of our own social location. And so let's look at this. The slave, the, the slave girl, the mob, and the jailbreak. And then what lessons can we learn from each of those vignettes in this passage today? The first is the slave girl. I mean, the first thing I ask this is I wonder how she became a slave. How did that happen? I mean, did the certainty that she was possessed in some way, by, did her family just not know what to do with this person? You know, was, were you that person in your family system? They just weren't sure what to do with me and mine. I can tell you that. Probably not surprised to hear that, for those of you who know me. You were probably a, a lot, Fred. And maybe like a lot of women, you know, this woman, she was told that she was a lot. I don't know how she became a slave. Maybe she was so, they were so poor, their financial separation or, or, or desperation so much that 
her family just allowed this to happen. Maybe her father pushed her out the door or the mother pushed her out the door. Or maybe she's an orphan. Maybe both parents had died and she had no other way of supporting herself except for this unthinkable way. We don't know. But in the midst of all of that, she spoke once and Luke records it in a way that would forever change your life. And it's, it looks like some kind of proclamation of the gospel. It says in verse 17 and 18, she says that the, woman, the, the slave girl would say, These men are slaves of the Most High God and who proclaim to you a way of salvation. And then it says she kept doing this for many days. We later learn that there's a demonic spirit is making use of her body just as her owners are making use of her. Which led one man to say this is the tortured speech of the enslaved masquerading as gospel words. And Paul was annoyed and suggests a level of frustration through repetition because it says in the text, she kept doing this for many days. So here's Paul annoyed. Good. Paul needs to be annoyed. Paul needs to be annoyed. He needs to hear what's happening here over and over again. She might say, this unnamed slave girl, we might say about her that nevertheless, she persisted. And I know that's a political catchphrase, but it's also the practice of almost every woman in the Bible and every woman in the world, frankly, who demands equality and justice to be heard. So Paul's annoyed. Good, he needs to be. And Paul uses his power not to silence her, not to, not to push her to the side, but to release her from her captivity, networked as it was with a combination of spiritual and social captivity. Now, that's the slave girl. What are some lessons we can learn from that? Anyone like me, anyone like me who is a dominant caste person in the caste system that is our culture, I'm white, I'm male, moneyed, privileged, and we're reading these stories from the early church, we should hear, A, definitely God's unconditional love in Jesus, no doubt, but B, we should be uncomfortable while hearing it. It is meant to discomfort those who are in the dominant position. This is what Scripture does over and over again, if we will listen. And anyone who is in the subordinate caste communities and minority and marginalized communities should hear about God's unconditional love in Jesus, yes, but be comforted that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also the God of Sarah, the God of Hagar, the concubine, of Rebekah and Rachel and forgotten Leah and Deborah the judge and Mary the brown-skinned unwed pregnant teen who gave birth to Jesus and in today's story the God of an unnamed slave girl. And if you are in those communities and you hear this, you can say hallelujah. The God that we worship has not written me out of the story. I am definitely a part of God's story. No one is written out of the story. You're not written out of the story. No matter how many times you may have been told that you were a lot or different or perceived that you are, that you're not a part of God's story. You are. Now, my question is, who needs to hear that today? Who among you needs to hear today that you are a part of God's story? Who among you here today, who feels erased? Do you feel erased? Do you feel invisible? Do you feel like you're not seen? Maybe that's the one reason that 
by the work of the Holy Spirit, you are sitting in this room or joining us online right now just to hear, wait a second, God does see me in my particular moment that I am enduring right now. I am seen. I am known. God has a part for you to play in God's plan for liberation. That's the lesson I glean from looking at the slave girl. Now, secondly, let's look at the mob. That's verses 17 to 24. We learn next in this work of liberation is never without cost. And all you have to do is follow the money. I mean, it's right there in the text. It says, when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone. So the motivation is in there. That's it. When they saw that she was no longer profitable... They seized Paul and Silas. You know, I don't know what the future holds for our country right now. I really don't. I've never felt more overwhelmed by it all. But there is going to be a cost if you are going to take your place in the work of liberation. There's going to be a cost. There always is. There was for Paul and Silas. The slave girl is a picture of a thousand enslavements where a lot of money is always to be made. Professor of New Testament theology, um, William Loder, says this. Tackle anything which is likely to lead to diminishing returns for investors, and you must be wrong from the very start. National leaders have used the same logic to resist doing sensible things about climate change. Of course, we'd add gun control as well. Don't threaten business. But while that seems obvious, what is said next by the owners is insidious. These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews. These men are disturbing the status quo. And oh, by the way, let's other them right now. They're Jews. One sentence, that sentence, captures history. Usually said by the owners, the privileged, the mob, the ones in control of economic and socioeconomic realities, the mob always engages in othering. Willie James Jennings, in his masterful commentary on the book of Acts, says, Owners are the high priests of the economic world. They announce and control what blesses and what transgresses economic life. Owners fear no religion, no faith, or its adherents. They only fear interruptions to the smooth flow of capital. These owners unleash an imperial power that is always at their disposal, one drenched in the seductions of money and influence. Yeah. Amen. It's all here in this text. Greed, bigotry, a hostile appeal to cultural political identity that labels the other as different and therefore is dangerous and therefore has to be silenced, incarcerated. It would be irresponsible of me to not name similarly targeted groups among us, immigrant workers accused of taking our jobs, members of minority religious traditions who were seen as suspicious, if not sinister, those whose sexual orientation or gender identity doesn't fit the majority. And what might be a new record low, those, quote, illegals 
who might get baby formula before some of ours do. The othering is so deeply entrenched in our socio-political life right now. And people pay. And so what happens? Well, Paul and Silas are stripped, beaten, and incarcerated. The predictable result of mob violence, stoked by fearful, xenophobic declarations by people who are seeing an economic opportunity dry up, has come full circle. Now, let's, what are the lessons there? A couple of them. One, let's face it, folks. We have, a, we have a lot of folks, we have a lot of owners in this congregation. I'm one of them. I own a home, I own a car, I'm white, I'm male, I'm educated. I have all sorts, and I'm inviting you into this with me if you fit my category. I have all sorts of reasons and motivations to protect and ensure that anything that stops the flow of power and money to my advantage is continued. I have so much motivation for this that I can be sure that I'm not aware of how much my bias is driving my own ship of desires and needs and wants and demands. And so here's the intentionality that I must have that I invite you into as well. If you're in my shoes and a Jesus follower, one is to interrogate the ways that I am complicit in oppression and to, and to, and to do that work knowing that I with my privilege, will literally just step on people and not know it's happening. So there has to be an intentionality around that. But secondly, we must be willing to open up our lives, use our power and privilege so that others might be liberated, to open our homes, our possessions, our privilege to use for the sake of the gospel to escape the seduction of power so that we can be a conduit of God's love in this city. Willie James Jennings again from his book, his, his uh, commentary on Acts. Ministry in the name of Jesus Christ releases people to speak, especially poor women, by challenging the voices of their own oppression that constantly wish to speak through them. The text does not give us the freed voice of the slave girl. Luke has, however, set us up to hear it freshly, newly, and without its chains. Churches should also long to hear freed voices and follow the Spirit in increasing their number. We so easily see the demons in the slave girl. Why? Why do we so easily see those demons in the slave girl and miss the ones that have made themselves all too cozy in our house of privilege? Well, Jesus wants to liberate us, like these owners, from a different kind of enslavement. So how is God calling you today? I'm asking. I'm asking you to ask yourself, how is God calling you to use whatever privilege and power you have to liberate, to bring about healing and wholeness and beauty in this world. And one more thing, one more lesson from this, this story about the mob and then being incarcerated. This story reminds us who gets arrested and who gets charged and who gets tried and convicted is very often a matter of who has access to resources and who enters judicial processes already profoundly disadvantaged. And that reality hasn't changed. And so for many of you, you've actually worked hard 
in bringing justice to that particular reality. Michelle Alexander, in her book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration, the Age of Colorblindness, a book I just think you have to read if you haven't, says this. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of nearly every developed country, even surpassing those in highly repressive regimes like Russia, China, and Iran. In Germany, 93 people are in prison for every 100,000 adults and children. In the United States, the rate is roughly eight times that, or 750 per 100,000. The racial dimension of mass incarceration is its most striking feature. No other country in the world imprisons so many of its racial or ethnic minorities. The United States imprisons a larger percentage of its black population than South Africa did at the height of apartheid. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. There's a book called Worse Than Slavery written by David Oshinsky, and he quotes a Mississippi government official right at the end of the Civil War. Emancipation will require a system of prison. And that's exactly what happened. So Paul and Silas in prison Paul and Silas in prison should remind us, Jesus followers, who live on the other side of an incarcerated, brown-skinned, colonized Savior, that we know too much to ever be fooled into believing that prisons are neutral or natural or normal. We are to be people convinced by the love of God that no one is beyond change, looking at ourselves as an example, that execution or solitary confinement are responses that lack a moral imagination, not to mention are demonstrably impossible to actually enact with justice. And so it is no surprise to us that the writer of Hebrews 13, in chapter 13, would tell us to visit those in prison as though we ourselves were imprisoned with them. Which is why City Church has a long history and presence in county jail, and we will again once we are allowed back in. So that's what we learned from that. Now, lastly, this last story is about the jailbreak. Now, I grew up in church. Some of you may have, some of you may not. But when I grew up in church, we tended to focus on this part of the story. We didn't talk about any of the other stuff I've talked about, by the way. That never came up. But this part about singing hymns and praying together and being sprung from jail, we talked a lot about that one. And I don't know, I always... I, I, it's, it kind of was one of those things where, you know, you grew up in church, it's like, well, when things aren't going well, just pray and sing and the things will get better. And, you know, I'm all for that. And just some, it just seems like my timetable for when God needs to liberate is not the same as God's, right? But we do it. We gather here each week, almost as an act of resistance to say, I will insist on hope in the midst of the tragedies around me. I will insist on it. So, pray, sing psalms, God will intervene. I'm glad Paul and Silas did that. I mean, I've never sat rotting in a first century jail. But I have prayed and sung in desperation. I've done it privately. I've done it sitting right there on that front row. It's where I normally am, right there. That's why I'm pointing over there. During a closing hymn, tears coming down my face as I'm concerned about a child or I'm concerned about this or that relationship or whatever. I've watched you do it too. We've prayed, we've sung in tears. 
in the midst of desperate times. When we sing our hymns, we join those who went before us. Paul and Silas in prison. The early Christians in the upper room. The desert fathers and mothers escaping persecution. The medieval monks carrying tradition. And civil rights marchers trudging the path of faith and resistance. And all of us here today. Praying and singing and listening to one another do so. Is something that we are called to do as we demand that we keep hope. And what I love is that it says that the other prisoners were listening to them. The other prisoners were listening to them. And that's kind of where I put myself in this story right now. That's where I am. I'm looking at Paul and Silas in that jail. I'm listening to them sing songs, and I'm not sure I could sing along with them. Which makes this whole story such a primer on why we gather to worship in the first place. It's not just to sing our song, but to hear others singing it. Which is why it's so important that as soon as it's possible, we all gather back together. I love having an online presence. I'm grateful for it. It's not going anywhere. It's really important. But if you can be here, be here. Because we need to be together to sing songs and listen to each other singing because faith is given in sufficient quantities to a community of Jesus' followers. But it's rarely, if ever, given to just one Jesus' follower. At least that's been my experience. But when I have it together, when I have that together, if you don't have faith, enough faith this morning, maybe there's enough collectively in this room to go around. There's enough for us to rub it off on one another a little bit. This is, this is enough because Jesus, the prayers of Jesus surround this community right now. In John 17, it says that he prayed not only for his disciples, but for all who would believe because of their testimony. That would be you. That would be me. That would be us. There's a certain sense that when we sing and pray together, we're just, we're just kind of entering in to what Jesus is already about as he intercedes for us even now. There's enough faith going around in that jail and enough love. There's enough love in that jail. Don't miss that part. The love in that jail. Where is it found? Paul and Silas stayed so the, so the, the guard would not be executed. Did you miss that part? Did you see that part? Paul and Silas, oh, we're still here. We didn't leave. Had we left, you'd be up the creek. I'm not sure what that is in Greek, but there's, there's a phrase like that. Had we left, that'd be a problem. But we're here. It, it moved the love that was in that prison. Moved that man to say, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas told him. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. And there's enough faith for your whole household. Everybody in. There's a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann who said this. Great or small, man or woman, black or white, handicapped or non-handicapped, where God is known, the differences disappear, and the democracy of the Holy Spirit begins. That is how new hope happens in the midst of change, the democracy 
of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Gracious God, captivity abounds in us today. Addictions to substances, to certainty, to having our way, addictions to being noticed and liked, addictions to our money, power, sex, addictions to our body image, addictions to toxic relationships. Our change, our chains preach our need for your intervening grace. And so help us this morning to hear the singing, to hear the prayers, and believe those songs and those prayers can be ours too. To know that we are not unnamed to you. Shake our life, if need be, that our chains might fall off and we might know the freedom of being what we already are, your beloved child. We pray this in Christ's name.